Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAGAFTRAFOUND. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations at Home program. I'm Scott Nance. It is my my honor, my pleasure, my excitement to introduce our guest of honor, the legend, James Brolin. Welcome to the SAG After Foundation Career Conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, uh, for, for, I'm for, here and I'm in Malibu looking out at the ocean while I'm Talking to you, it's a pretty easygoing day. <laughs> uh, thank you guys for the invite. Uh, I haven't talked too much about myself for the last couple of years. You know, if you're not forced to, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's repetitious. Well, we are going to really get into your career. And I'm actually glad that you haven't done much talking over these last couple of years, because that's just going to make this, this conversation really, really fresh. And I guess the first question that I have for you, James, is... What made you want to become an actor in the first place? Uh, I think the fact that I was so unsuited for it <laughs> that I wanted to kill the dragon, you know, because I can remember as a young fella, I had a, I had a friend with a, a great sense of humor and a love of characters that we saw in the movies. And uh, the one I would dwell on when I was seven to ten, I think, was Quasimodo. And, uh, you know, that started trying, you know, that started a whole thing for several years. But I can remember, let's see, it was, I think I was about 14, 13, 14 years old when I got up in a class, an English class to give a book report and sat down shaking and I could not, I, I couldn't function in front of people. I tried it again. Then I joined a play, which I, I mean, I was a spear chucker in this play. And uh, <laughs> I left before the show started. I left the ga- grounds. <laughs> That's how traumatic it was. So Consequently, uh, as The Outsiders, the book The Outsiders says, I got my 10,000 hours in of horror in training. And uh, I used to go to sometimes five different coaches a week and classes trying to overcome the fact that I was going to be killed on stage. I just knew it. (laughs) And, you know, the more you do it, the less it hurts. That's all. And uh, even today, I must say, I I get the collie wobbles on the first day. Then it goes away. These are the best days of my life at work, I I must say, um, other than um, birth of my children or or marriages, you know. (laughs) Well, well, when when you were in those early years, you know, those formative years, James, when when the acting bug really lit your fuse. Yeah. Some of the early mentors 
the the inspirations, like the people that you looked up to that gave you just great advice about acting that you just never forgot and use to this day? Yeah, um, I must say my my first outing, you know, I was signed at Fox when I was almost 20. Yep. And I was there for seven years and I was doing, I mean, I was dubbing other actors' voices in big movies, you know. Uh, and not much was really happening for a couple of years. And I got a, a job on, um, it was an Air Force bomber show, a weekly network show. And Dick Donner was the director. And after having done another show where the director was so abusive that I wanted to quit and the wow. leading lady came over and put her arm around me and said, I, I know how you feel. You know, it's going to go away. You'll be out of here. You gotta, they're going to make sure you look good. And so, uh, you know, at that point, I'm thinking, you know, I'm getting all this training. I've gotten through the worst of it. And it is so horrible at work. And then I had Dick Donner, who completely changed everything around and started even to teach me what directing was all about. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And this was, um, I would say, 1962. And uh, I was 21. By the way, I, I missed uh, the fact that uh, I, I, I had a, a dark room when I was 10. I was fascinated with photography. And my dad used to run a lot of 16 millimeter film. And um, so by the time, and I was making uh, pinhole cameras with tape and boxes and literally buying sheet film and developing it. I was, I was just pretty good for a 10, 12, 13 year old. And then I bought my first Super 8 camera at 15 and said, I'm going to be a filmmaker. Never thinking that I'd be on in front of the lens. You know? uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, not that I've directed a lot, but I've, I've directed about 30 hours of TV and three yeah. movies. Um, and would love to do more. I have four projects now up for financing, but, you know, good luck after the pandemic. We'll see. There's a lot of product out, but, uh, and I really think I got some viable scripts, but uh, so far, you know, the financing thing, nobody thinks so but me. So uh, anyway, uh, years later, Dick Donner, who just died, I'm so sad, yeah. uh, the sweetest guy, and directed Josh and Goonies early on. I think maybe that was Josh's first outing with a with an agent, sending him off. And suddenly yeah. he's in a Spielberg picture with Dick Donner <laughs> directing, you know, which is still, uh, you know, uh, Still a, a cult, a viable, you know. In fact, people ask me, you know, they'll say to me, I, I, I don't know why they'll say, saw you in Goonies. <laughs> they, somehow they get us mixed up. <laughs> if you go on my site on IMDb, you'll see, um, I think what they thought was me and is Christopher Plummer. In a yeah, season. I saw that. I saw yeah. that. I'm like, that's yeah. not James Brolin. <laughs> if you watch the film, I'm in it with he and Shirley MacLaine. But I guess, uh, you know, uh, it, a lot of young people running things are not aware of what the old fogies are doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're you're working uh, more than than anyone, and and it all started really in the in the early '60s. You know, when you were doing you know stuff like contracted by Fox, and you were on TV shows like. 
I think Bus Stop was your first TV show. Yeah, that was the one that was so horrible. Um, the, uh, the director was so abusive, not only to everybody, but especially to me. At least wow. I thought well, then, yeah. then, then, you know, you were on a voyage to the bottom of the sea mm-hmm. and you were on Batman three times. I mean, what was it like jumping around to all those like classic shows like Patty Duke and all that stuff when you were really, really finding your way as a young? Well, actor? You know, it always felt few and far between. That That's the thing is that it sounded like jumping around. But weeks had go by and I'm going, you know, you guys are paying me ninety three dollars a week. What are you going to do with me? I yeah. mean, seriously, I would net ninety three dollars a week off of one hundred and thirty five gross. I think that was in the first year. And then, you know, you get five percent pay raises, but it's more money than I ever had because. I would net parking at Lowry's and Dino's on the strip of $42 a week and dinner out the back door. You know, that's a wow. drill actor's uh, sentence. Yep, yeah, yeah, that wait, wait, waiting tables. And I, I, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, also during that time, you know, you were, were you know, got to be in a couple of big films. I mean, you know, really just getting your way going like uh, Our Man Flint and and yep. one of my favorite films, Fantastic Voyage. What, what were those like? Well, it was really nice being around really talented cameramen. And, you know, I was interested in lighting and camera. So everybody down the line um, and, you know, actors come in different uh, sizes and shapes. Um some of them are soapboxers and others are really, really nice people. And I would say the majority of, of uh, good friends that I've met um, were probably actors, you know, mm-hmm. because I'm a, I was around them a lot. But, you know, of course, I'm I would say I'm rather than gregarious, I, I would choose to be a loner, go do something, read a magazine, go study something, go learn something rather than just pal around with a bunch of people. But uh, I really did enjoy actors and and thought they were smarter than I had anticipated, especially the ones that seemed to uh, move ahead. And there were ex- ex- exceptions. <laughs> when, when you were when you were doing those shows or, or, or those early films, yeah. were there actors who were already really established that, that you met and that you kind of picked their brain a little or that gave you any kind of advice? Like, uh, uh, I don't know, like any legends of that time that you got to meet and be like, you know, that's who I want to be uh, when I grow up. <laughs> well, you know, we were all fascinated with Brando and James Dean early on back then. And uh, when I was I was 18, uh, I got a job with a friend of my dad's who was producing a picture called Mutiny on the Bounty. So I was cast in the prologue and epilogue as Brando's son, and I went off to Tahiti for a, a year wow. and was in and out. They changed directors three times. They had many versions of the script with the prologue and epilogue out. It was supposed to be years later on Pitcairn Island, me telling the story of what happened in this movie, you know, and I'm sure they were, you know, like two, three minute increments if I was lucky. And of course uh, I was so green at 18 or 19, uh, but um, I got over there well before Brando and 
kind of got to know him and kind of got to watch it. And he was the kind of guy that was good at everything, but he would never show you unless he practiced it at home until he was the best of all of them. And I'm talking about uh, uh, Tahitian dancing, which was rigorous and tough. I'm talking about walking on stilts, which was a big thing uh, in Tahiti, how high stilts you can walk around the set on. And... um, I, you know, just by observation, I learned a lot about a guy who was in the beginning kind of godlike. And then I then I realized, okay, I see you figure out what you want to do. You get real good at it and you go out there and you show them, ah, you know, I was born like this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, and I got that. I got that feeling from other guy. I was never a person that ever asked for an autograph, but I was always curious about anybody that was really good at anything and why, you know? Well, in 1969, talk about your big break, Marcus Welby, MD, uh, Dr. Stephen Kiley. Like, what do you remember uh, about your audition for this role, this role that carried you through seven seasons, four Oscar nominations, Emmy nominations, and an Emmy win? (laughs) Yeah, and the Emmy win was for the pilot of Odd Things. So I was prepared because I don't know of anybody that's ever won an Emmy for a pilot. Wow. Mm, Everybody's getting used to you, you know. Um, But uh, I can remember a technique that I used to get that Emmy. There was a crying scene and I used uh, Visine a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's uh, it doesn't matter how and I mean, I'm basically a method actor, but if they ain't working, do whatever uh, you can to, and also I was film-wise. I knew uh, how to um, trick the camera from early on. You know, I started at fifteen, and so I realized they're going to cut this and cut that, and and that helped me a lot in how um, I began to present myself. You know, the tough thing was memorizing the lines and just getting up there with all these people, and then once you, as I say, I call them the collie wobbles, but once you get up there and get past them, uh, it's it's amazing how you can kind of surprise yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you're preparing, but in a way you're going, I want to go way on beyond my preparation and see what the hell happens. I want to drop the guard while the camera's running. How do you remember your lines? How? Well, I'll tell you. Um, it's pure rote and repetition to the point, uh, and, you know, I'm not alone in some great actors um, like that, so I don't feel bad that it doesn't come to me easy. But I have been where I'm about to start a picture, and I've been studying heavily for three to four weeks, and it ain't going in. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody laughs, but I say I'm going to Bakersfield, so I get in my truck, and I drive, it's what, two and a half hours up to Bakersfield to have lunch. And while I'm driving, I look at a line and then mull it over and say it out loud. Mull. And for some reason, while I'm driving, there's an alpha state. that I heard this word, alpha state, where you go where you're most adept at learning. And it happens to me when I'm driving. So four to five hours of driving, um, I will prepare myself for 
you know, each line all the way down. And then later, once once they rhythmically sound right and real to me, then I'll begin to apply them to a scene. It's never a problem. It's just the assembly of words that I can't. And even now, uh, as a director, I am so easy on actors. I say uh, that, you know, the script girl will say, well, that's not right. The line is such as that. I said, no, let him talk. T- tell me what you're trying to tell me. And okay, print it. We're moving on. I learned that from Eastwood, you know, because he's so easygoing about everything. One take and a lot of that stuff doesn't matter. Who you trying to please as long as you understand what they're talking about and we feel real about it and they feel real about it, you know? Yeah, Eastwood, he just kind of just says, whenever you're ready. He doesn't even say action. No. Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, and cut is, I don't know what we're doing standing around here. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, you know, so but but getting to play a character like that. So this is like the first time you're 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 on a series and you're working yeah. with like Robert Young and you're you're getting to to build like an arc of a character over a season and then another season and that went on for seven seasons. So, yeah. so how how much did you learn as an actor getting to do your first long running series which by the way Correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but wasn't Marcus Welby, MD, the first number one hit series that ABC ever had? <laughs> Boy, that, that, that I never heard. But what I did hear uh, that was a first was we were number one within the first six weeks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, we remained there. Um, consistently for at least a year, year and a half. I mean, you can check on that stuff, but uh, uh, it was it was a crazy phenomenon. And, you know, everybody kept saying, well, you know, you you legitimize the motorcycle. And I go, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> big deal, you know, but it it's kind of true, you know. Um, everybody on a motorcycle in most people's minds, would, you know, was a, an outlaw. And I was a guy with a mode of transportation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, before that, I'll tell you what prepared me. Um, Fox had a Fox News Studios in South Africa. And it was like, you know, it was they would make those uh, in the old movie. You go to the movie and you see black and white news from all over the world before sure. the movie. Yep. Um, Anyway, that's what that was used for. And now it wasn't used much. So they said, okay, we got, and this was 66 or 67. We got 300,000. We got Jackie Bissett, which we just signed. And Jim Brolin, we'd like to do a remake of Pickup on South Street at the studios over there. And I played the Richard Widmark role. And of course, watched it, you know, 40 times. And there's a little bit of a ripoff of Richard, you know, trying to be Richard Widmark. But it's kind of it's a horrible movie. (laughs) But I'm fascinated on how I jumped into the lead of a movie. And I'm still fascinated that I could uh, pull it off as well as I did, even though the movie is really, um, really bad. The director uh, loved uh, loved to hide his scotch in the toilet in the 
Wow. But in the, you know, the tank in the back, we'd go in there and go, where is he getting this stuff? And finally somebody lifted the top of the tank and here was the bottle there every day. So we, uh, Jackie and I a lot had to fend for ourselves, you know, uh, and, and, you know, of course, she had a nice career and, and it was a real breakthrough for me to say, okay, now you handle the, this is what it's like to be the lead in a movie, you know? And, you know, if you get a smaller part, generally they try and push it into two or three days, oh, one or two days. So you got two, three scenes, one right at. So being in a movie is just the same only every day for a month or two, you know? Well, with, yeah. with Marcus Welby, you know, after seven seasons, yeah. like, like, how did you feel at the end of that run as an actor? Like, how much more confidence did you have moving forward after all this experience, seven seasons, you know, well, how many episodes? I mean, that must have been just such a massive growth for you as an actor. Well, you know, I asked out uh, after doing that film with Bissett. Uh, and waiting a year, I asked out, I was, that was my seventh year at, at Fox, but I asked out, I said, you know, you guys, I want to be in the movie business. You guys aren't doing anything. Can I, can I get free? And so they said, yeah, sure. Let me out. Um, and three weeks later, I was signed kind of as a contract player over at Universal. Mm-hmm. Three weeks after that, they started talking to me about doing this, uh, doing a test for the Marcus Welby pilot. Yeah, great. Okay. And we had the best DP and the best crew. A lot of times it's just also, as a matter of fact, now they just put you up against a white wall and that's your test. You know, yeah. <laughs> back then it was a real crew with real sets and and uh, anyway, uh, the thing it was three days after I did the test and they said, you got this role, you know, and it was, uh, as I say, a great crew uh, and, and Robert Young and myself. And it just felt even it felt really like a film felt ritzy, you know, it felt like, oh, this is great. They've made it so much easier for me to deliver what I have to deliver because of their professionality. And, you know, I feel this way about all movie crew members, anybody that doesn't pull their weight gets on a don't hire list. And so nothing but the best guys you've ever met on a construction site. And a lot of them were, you know, in and working for contractors, building houses and apartment buildings, but they were so good and so giving you pay them 100%, they give you 140%, say, yeah, yeah, I thought you might need that. And they're paid very well for that in the end. Sure. But it, it's been have being uh, raised, I was raised in 14 different houses. My dad would build a house, he'd frame it, put this queen over it, and our beds would be moved in there. So at five in the morning, the sun's in our eyes, and I was a cleanup kid for 25 to 50 cents an hour. He was penurious. <laughs> and um, I learned to work early on. I worked for Handsworth Bicycles in, in uh, Beverly Hills and Westwood. And I, as I grew up, I worked for uh, a plumber. I opened gas stations at 15. Um, so I always uh, never minded lifting the weight, you know. Sure. And 
as a matter of fact, here's an example. As I was ready for college, he said, you know, you go down to UCLA, however you get there, or Santa Monica City College, and I'll pay for your lunch and gas and any major expenses. I said, oh, great. So I started college. I actually had been, I spent some time at SC, and then I think I was at UC, in UCLA Extension. That's where you pay extra money yep. for your Oh, class. yeah, I know. I think that, sure. <laughs> and um, he says, here's how much you owe me so far. And I said, what? He said, this is, this is uh, what I've loaned you so far. And I said, you, lo- you loaned me? Oh, 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 I get it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I never borrowed a nickel from anybody after that since then. Wow. Uh, um, I would go to work in a liquor store packing shelves or whatever. And actually, I went to um, uh, unemployment once. And went through whatever you go through. And I said, no, 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 this is this does not feel good to me. Yeah. I'm asking somebody for free money. They're treating me horribly for doing it. And uh, so <laughs> I never went back. I got a job. I got one job after the other, you know. And I, I think if I was going to advise any actors, uh, I would say do the same damn thing. You know, however many jobs you can work, you're going to learn from everybody. Mm-hmm. You know? And at the gas station, this was back in the days when you even cleaned the windshield wipers. You know, not only the windshield, when you check the air and the tires, you check the oil. You know, that was for filling up with gas, you know. Yeah, yeah. Charge, no tips. That was just the way it was done. It's a lot different now. <laughs> well, like, you know what? Like when there are so many actors who try to make the transition from TV to film. Yeah. So, so the last couple of years of Marcus Welby, you know, you had already started doing some some pretty major films. In yeah. fact, you know, when I was when I was growing up, like one of the first movies I ever saw in a theater uh-huh. And, and kudos to my parents for being forward thinking and taking me to grown up movies and not the Disney stuff. But yeah. Jim, the first movie, one of the first movies I saw in a theater was Westworld. And yeah. that like, look at look how how ahead of its time that movie was. I mean, a, you got a whole new TV series based on it. But what was that like for you, like working yeah. with Richard Benjamin on 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 a, on such a. Like, uh, and of course, Yul Brenner. I mean, that that movie is still amazing. I rewatched it to prep for this conversation. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, it's funny because, you know, uh, Our Man Flint, when I did Our Man Flint, I went from doing a, a day or two and meeting Jimmy Colburn to Jimmy Colburn being a uh, um, third or fourth down in a picture I was starring in, in 1981, you know, (laughs) it all kind of flips around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But when I, when I signed up with Universal before I got the pie in negotiating with whatever little negotiation and negotiating I had, I got 500 week a week when I started there. Um. I told them that I was in the movie business and that's what I wanted to concentrate on. Right. So after the first or second, maybe this, no, the first year of Welby being so, I said, where's my movie? You know, we're off for five, five months. Where's my movie? 
<laughs> and they sent a couple of executives down and asked me to come into the uh, cafeteria, the uh, commissary. They, yeah. Commissary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they sat and suddenly after talking peacefully, this young executive brought out my contract onto the table and circled in red twice. Here's what you signed. Here's what you agreed to, buddy. Well, I tell you, I'm, I'm a real generally easygoing guy, but I'm shocked that I did, and there's 200 people in the room. I'm shocked I didn't turn that table over and walk out of there wow. just, just because of the attitude. Would have been a good scene in a movie. <laughs> what a bit. But, yeah, yeah, but it was real. And um, I didn't, and I kept quiet. Well, oddly enough, I was with uh, the best guys at the Morris office at the time, and I got a call from a guy. It was Michael Crichton, Michael Crichton for Westworld. Yeah. <laughs> Went over, met with him. He said, great. We love you for this movie, you know. I'm trying to think of which was first, because that was at MGM. And then the following year, they wanted me back to do another one. And I think that was Walter Seltzer with Skyjacked. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> with Charlton Heston as the pilot. Yeah. And Seltzer said, we want to have the least likely guy, the nicest guy to hijack an airliner yep. <laughs> in town. And that, we think that's Jim Rowland. So I did that one. And it did that was did very well, and of course Westworld is hot hot stuff. Yeah, and and uh, maybe that commissary thing where I almost turned over the table was right after those two, because uh, in that department Universal wasn't doing anything, and that's when I did Gable and Lombard, and I still believe to this day Frank Price is still around. He can look at this five times, but I still believe that Frank Price put that movie in the toilet after 14 days. Why say that? Because it went in the toilet. It never got any advertising. It never got it. You know, and it's universal. They, they, they make a movie, they splash it everywhere. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They literally pulled it really quickly. And that was, uh, <laughs> that was, uh, Sidney Fury came to me and he says, I think you can play Clark Gable. And they don't. They want Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw to play Clark Gable, you know. Sure, right. And uh, anyway, Sidney said, no, I'm not making the movie unless it's Jim Brolin and Jill Clayburgh. And so we made that picture. And actually, uh, I never tried to play anybody I saw, any other person. And uh, I told Sydney, I, I don't think I can pull this off. And he says, listen, he said, I'm going to put you in um, tomorrow morning. Be here at 10 o'clock. I got two Gable movies. I just want you to watch. And every day this week, you're going to watch two Gable. You're going to watch 10 movies. And it was about Wednesday that uh, he walked in the screening room and said, what do you think? And I said, I just got a little inkling, little feel. I moved a certain way that I'm not used to. And I knew that was kind of the beginning of a possible key. And at that point, I go, you know, with him behind me saying, you can do this, how do you turn this down? You know? Absolutely. Right. Uh, I, I always told Joss, what you don't do is more important than what you do. But the fact is, is during my career, and you can go over all of these 140 films or whatever, and 17 years of primetime stuff. Um, 
where I had to pay the rent. That's a real danger where you start living above with a, with a woman who has big tastes and three kids. <laughs> and then you got to take a job that is going to ruin your career. And that's pretty much true. Um, Josh has been pretty careful about those, but we all love to work and, uh, and uh, he has a great career now. Oh, Wonderful. Goodness. And I, I think I told him that because I knew I had already screwed up pretty bad by taking things I should have held out for, you know. Well, it's well, like right back. now. I was offered a series uh, two weeks ago, and, and I was basically off to Europe uh, from June to January. And I said, no, this is not right. This ain't going to work, kids, you know. Mm-hmm. not. It just wasn't on paper. It ain't on paper. Don't fail with them. (laughs) (laughs) If it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. That's right. Well, Jim, I want to ask you about Clark Gable. I mean, like, like you're playing Clark Gable. Like what was your point of connection when you finally moved forward that made you go, "I, I can do this. And how challenging was it for you to play Clark Gable? And how did you and Jill Clayberg as Carol Lombard, like, help each other, elevate each other? Uh, well, she was always, you know, very helpful. She never, you know, I mean, some actors you can feel there's a competition in a scene. And sometimes that's very helpful. helpful. But uh, many times... Uh, they're there to make you look better, and I'm there to make them look better than they ever have. Yeah, that's yeah. always my. Uh, to me, the difference between me as an actor and a and a director, and it probably maybe it's not a smart thought, but that's me. It's the same thing. I want to make you just really great, and I guess subliminally, I know it's going to make me look. It's going to bounce right back off of you onto me. Sure. You know. But uh, the best times, and there have been um, my kids, I think, figured out I've been I've gone to work 9,500 days now. Uh, the best times have been the most of those days, you know. Wow. Wow. And uh, even difficult days are are um, malleable. And then the next day is fine. <laughs> you know, a horrible, horrible day. I've never. Uh, even missed a day of work because I, I wouldn't let anybody, I take a bunch of awful pills and I wouldn't let anybody know I was sick. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't anything that was catching, but terrible flu type colds and things sure. like never missed a day of work. I don't think on anything regardless of film. Um, and I think part of that was, I don't want to miss anything, you know? If you love what you do, Jim, you don't have yeah. to work. Like, that's, that's the thing. That's true. That's absolutely but, true. But, but when it came to Clark Gable, like, like even to this day, yeah. where, does, where does your performance as Clark Gable rank in your favorite performances that you've done over your career? Um, maybe most fun I've ever had, uh, right wow. close to the top. And that doesn't mean anything to anybody else. But to me, every day at work with Jill and especially with Sid going, God, you nailed it, you know, whether you did or not. (laughs) You know, know, your ego's always in there, isn't it? And also, uh, he would give me things to work toward as we shot that it would be bad. Sidney likes to shoot also uh, 
in, um, you know, from the beginning of the show through to the end. Most times you don't, yeah, chronologically, you don't have that luxury. Of course, most times you're in one location, you shoot everything. You know, and uh, he just tells them in the beginning, I'm going to move around and it's going to be chronological and uh, you're going to watch these actors grow up during this movie, you know. And I, have you ever seen the Chris file? His originally won yes. the. Yes, uh, I did. Yeah. Best film. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I, I uh, what, what else did I do with? Oh, I did Night of the Juggler with him later on, which <laughs> I broke my foot uh, during shooting in Central Park. They had uh, there's white lines along the roads through Central Park and they they put a two by, they nailed a two by four on the white line and painted it white so that the cab could jump the curb easier. Well, they forgot it was there. And the next day I'm running and I kicked the end of this two by four, which is, and broke my foot. Right. So I'm down for a month. Oh, right. And Sydney goes, you know, this film isn't right for me. I'm And he quit. And it, and it, uh, another director ended up, I, but I learned a lot about shooting with uh, Sydney loves shooting with long lenses and getting the cameras back in a building. You can't even see the camera. And he's, you know, so that leaves your depth of field very narrow. Your eyes are in focus and everything else is soft, you know. So he, he, his movies have a kind of a fantasy look to them, you know. Well, yeah. well, also around this time, so 1978, you know, again, mm-hmm. like these, these are my my formative years growing up uh, in Philadelphia, where I'm from. And, yeah. and yeah, one of my favorite movies to this very day. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Capricorn one. It was a big hit. It is a big hit. It still holds up. Yeah, I don't still- know if you if you've seen that recently, but if you haven't. I would advise you to watch it again because that movie has it all and it is so provocative and mm-hmm. it, I'm surprised no one's remade it because it's such a good movie. But what was it like for you? Like, like Charles Brubaker, you know, uh, is like the voice of reason in that film. Yeah. And you're working with all these amazing actors, Sam Watterson. I mean, Hal Holbrook, you know, that monologue he gives about why he's faking the Mars landing. And and then you're off in the desert. You have to eat a rattlesnake. I mean, yeah. that was a pretty grueling performance. And it's such a great movie. But what was it like for you to have to play such a grueling role like Brubaker? Well, you know, at the time I wasn't uh, I mean, listen, I was I was raised uh, within five miles of the Beverly Hills hotel, but, <laughs> but there were rattlesnakes and coyotes and my mother would beat the deer off her garden every day. And it was up by Mulholland. You know, it was, it was kind of a different world in those days. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the Beverly Hills hotel with no trees in, in sight anywhere. You know, it was desert in mm, Beverly right. Hills, Yeah, but it must've been a microcosm where, you know, they were able to, Without bringing in a lot of water, they were able to grow trees eventually, and it became what it was. But anyway, I lived up in the mountain area where, I mean, the weekends, us kids would uh, step over the rattlesnakes and camp out at, on the weekends, you know. And uh, and then because and then uh, my dad bought uh, two horses when I was about uh, when I was about fourteen or fifteen. 
So I got used to horses. And then in the middle of Welby, uh, this was 73, uh, I bought a ranch up in, um, and I had a ranch in Winnetka with six acres and about eight head of horses. Uh, but I bought this ranch up in Paso Robles near the Hearst Castle and sold everything and moved lock, stock, and barrel up there. Wow, wow. And I figured, well, I, I'll figure this out, you know. And they said, what, what in the world? We're in the middle of a hit series. What in the world are you doing? But we're going to move all your work into three days a week, and then you'll have the weekend off. So, like, that, what a perfect answer, right? Man, wow, that's clout, buddy. <laughs> and I've been a pilot for forty over 40 years now, and there was an airfield on this ranch. So, and two lakes, I'm a bass fisherman. Um, I ended up uh, raising and training horses. I had 60 head of Simmental cattle that I was breeding up. I bought half breeds. Uh, these are all pretty expensive, but I was literally wanted to be in business. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe I'd have pulled out of this if, uh, well, I, I couldn't pull out, but uh, <laughs> I wanted that to work. And I've been, actually, I've been in a lot of different businesses that didn't work out, but, you know, they're all life experiences that were, but anyway, I moved up there and I would come down for uh, three to four days a week and, um, and stay with my brother. He had a great house right near Universal. Hmm. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was another part of my life. You know, uh, the, and that's when I met, I, I did some rebuilding on the ranch and looked around and talked to contractors and they just didn't, because I'm from a contracting family, they didn't speak my language. So I got four young guys that were architectural graduates from Cal Poly all smoking grass every day, all pretty hip. And they went to work for me, right? One of them became an architect. And then we decided to start a lumber company together. And we're in our 46th year now. Together. I still am in the lumber business. So ah, that, that's work. But because of him, he's running it, you know. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And we started also building, designing and building spec houses, too. So... Oh, but I'm not in that business. I'm not in any other business. I've just tried them all, and it's been kind of fun and and wonderful. And I, to me, I learn so much from those other things. Just to bring back to what I really love to do is, if I could just get that next film financed, I want to put together a film that everybody loves. You know. Well, hopefully those uh, financiers are watching this conversation. Oh well. Yeah. <laughs> and if it doesn't happen, I'm fine. You know, listen, you're, you're, you're more than fine, but, but what was that, you know, when Capricorn one came out, I mean, that was, that was a big, massive hit, uh, but it was also, like I said, I mean, for, for you as an actor, just like, what was it like making that movie with Peter Hyams, the director? Well, first of all, Hyams is uh, very adamant about what he wants to do. Uh, you don't feel like you're ever lost because he has figured it out already for you. And all you can do is really commit to what he wants. Well, everything he wanted was really terrific. And including those, uh, the aerial things with the biplane and the, and the two choppers up and down. He was in one of those shooting. I mean, he, oh, wow. he jumps right in. 
too, you know. Um, do you know that he was a cameraman in New York for one of the networks when uh, they did the moonshots? And people kept saying, well, this is impossible. You know, everybody, you know, all the way down to somebody said, well, everybody knows the moon is just made of green cheese anyway, you know. <laughs> and uh, so uh, anyway, he said, you know, this is really, and he started writing. I don't know for the first time, but he started writing this script in New York. A couple of years later, moved to L.A. and uh, got this film financed. And it's one of the really great films. You're right. I was lucky to be in it. I remember the day they said, OK, uh, we're going to do the rattlesnake thing on Thursday. How, what do you want to do about that? And I, well, my dad, my dad uh, looked for the last Dutchman in New York. We had rattlesnakes all over in <laughs> Mulholland. Uh-huh. I said, but so I'll tell you what, you're going to have to cut this thing open, make it look real, but go and get some like a uh, lot, uh, some monkfish or something uh-huh. that stays together and put it in the center. And then we'll put some raspberry jam on it. And um, that's what I will eat the raw fish. Oh man. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that's what it was. And, uh, but, uh, my dad had actually barbecued uh, uh, rattlesnakes that were killed, actually, in Benedict Canyon there. And also in uh, Arizona. We lived in Mesa, Arizona at one point because he was looking for the lost Dutchman. My dad graduated from um, his parents came out from uh, um, not Boulder, Colorado, but Colorado Springs, started a confectionery company in um, Pasadena made cakes and cookies and everything. And then his dad died of heart failure because he ate everything he made. Uh, and, but he went to Caltech there because it was the closest school, but it was the number one school in the nation. Right. So he's pulled out of Caltech as a star student to try to redesign the DC three at Santa Monica and they were all made at Santa Monica and uh, at Santa Monica Airport. And uh, they, they were falling apart vibrationally, and he figured out what to do about this. Then he sent his mother on a trip back east in one of the deliveries, and it crashed into the mountain at Flagstaff. Oh, so wow. he lost father and mother soon. And he never talked much about that. But that, that, I think that's where I... You know, I spent a lot of time at Santa Monica Airport in those days watching these planes go in and out. So by the time I was 18, I was I was coming up with, you know, whatever it was, 20 bucks an hour back then. And now it's two, three hundred, you know, <laughs> but uh, been flying ever since then. Then he's then he got out of that business and started for Wemo. He developed the hula hoop. Oh, nice. <laughs> and uh, I forget what other things they were. They made a lot of money at. And then he started building houses one at a time. And I lived in 14 houses by the time I graduated that he would be building while we lived in. Amazing. You know? Amazing. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. Year, the year after Capricorn won, you had another big hit, Jim, and that was the Amityville Horror. And yeah. That is another movie, still scary to this day. Get out. Uh, and, and you know, for you to play George Lutz, 
I mean, you really have to go deep and dark into a character like that. What was your point of connection to play him? And what was it like for you to be in that headspace for the duration of that shoot? Well, I can't say that I got to hang around anybody like that, but in a way you do and you draw from people you know that just can't be excited about life. You know people, like we all know people like that. that yeah. just something wrong all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also, I met George Lutz, and I, uh, that, that kind of ruined everything because I wasn't sure whether he was telling the truth about this. And I talked to his kids, and they had the story so right on. They almost used the same words if you talk to the kids separately, like they wow. were schooled at this. And, you know, later they moved to San Diego, and they say their house filled with rattlesnakes, you know, so they're on to their next book. It sounds oh, boy, right? yeah, yeah. But nevertheless, here was a thing that um, everybody, the neighbors, and, you know, and I, I drove to Amityville. I drove around the house. I drove around. It's on a keyway with, uh, with water in between these yep. streets, you know, with a yep. water garage on the back. And hmm. I thought, well, geez, those are really close to the other house. And uh, but we drove around the back and looked across the waterway and the garage, the boat garage door was painted black and there was no way to get to it. And the house was yellow with white trim at that time, except this black door. And I thought, oh, whoa, that, that got me right there, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you got to, and going back, you got to remember that uh, my first, like Jack Coslin, uh, Bob, Bob Gist from New York, these were all, um, uh, these were all uh, method teachers, you know, I started out learning the method and then ended up going, building, reading Stanislavski's building a character and the actor prepares and all of that stuff. And, you know, basically on building a character, the book starts talking about, you know, if you're a violin, you want to make sure you're polished and got the best strings on and just tuned so perfectly and then go out there and show them, you know, and that's the same with an actor. You know, do your sit-ups, work your voice every morning. So did uh, you stay in character for the duration of the shoot? No, I don't do – I will crack a joke the minute they cut. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> wrong with me, you know. But anybody that's worked with me will tell you that I'm, it's a joke a minute, and then the minute they yell action, I, it's, it just works better for me. But – I'm sure they're thinking, well, I, you know, he could have done better if he'd just been concentrating. You know? How did the uh, how did the success of the film, the Amityville Horror, how did that have an impact on your career? Because I'll tell you, you're really good in this role as Lutz, but uh, were you too good? <laughs> Oh, have you heard me talk about this before? Because uh, you're right on. Uh, nobody want, knew what to do with me for a couple wow. of years. And one of the offers that I had was uh, Oliver Stone. Had never directed a picture, but he wrote this picture called The Hand. And it was the only thing that came around. They said, eh, you know, you should read it, look at it. And it was all with the, within the Morris office. And uh, 
So I read it and I just said, this is a real stinker. This ain't going to work. This is not good for me. And the next thing I knew, it's in the news. Michael Caine is doing the hand. I kind of went, wait a minute, ask me again. Uh Let me me check. But then, you know, the reality is Michael Caine got away with doing everything that came across. You know, he made a lot of money just doing everything. And he's so Michael Caine that it kind of doesn't matter. You know, it's true. You're right. He could do Jaws. Unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So uh, anyway, but I sat around and and. uh, Well, the ranch really was not cheap to operate it was all those you know i had semis full of horse and cattle feed coming in and uh i had these two lakes that were not down at water level so i had to pump water up into them and the electrical expense oh anyway so when um they came to me with hotel and that was after like two to three year wait right yeah and then uh aaron spelling really kind of offered me the moon as far as uh, a comfortable salary, but all great, great clothes, any clothes you have ever seen, we will buy you. And, and I said, I want to drive a Porsche in the show. Uh, he said, well, that looks a little, I said, no, 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 no. Let's, let's pencil it out. If he made this <laughs> much money and the, and he lived in the hotel, he could afford a Porsche payment. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. I did the same thing with Pensacola. I drove a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> but we penciled it out first, and they said, yeah, you're right. He could. If that's what he wanted, you know, he could afford it. So uh, anyway, uh, I did that show, and that that went another 140 or 50 five, shows. Five seasons, five seasons yeah. 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 How much fun was it to play Peter McDermott, especially on a show where everybody came through that hotel as a guest star. Uh, that just must've yeah. really been so every week, you know, like it never gets stale because you have all these different actors, like right. legends of all kinds. So, so how was hotel for you working on a series like that compared to doing Marcus Welby? Marcus Welby, you know, I had some advantages. I had him, I bought a mo- big, beautiful motorhome and they paid me $600 rent, which more than paid for the thing. And I, you know, but uh, I was the kid and the Robert Young had said, uh, if he thinks he's going to get out of this and go make his movies, I'm going to make sh- Well, he didn't say some nice things. Uh-huh, anyway. sure. <laughs> um, and so when Spelling said, you know, whatever, I said, well, you know, uh, you know, the good old actors thing, uh, what I've always wanted to do is direct. He said, oh, yeah, oh, that's possible. I said, well, look who's directing this guy and this guy and this guy. Some of them will quit acting and why not be able to go back? And he said, yeah, but he said, I want you to be in the show a year so you really know what's going on. And guess what? He called me one year later and he said, your year's up. He said, uh, Want to rack. Pick, there's three shows right now. Pick the one you like. You know, we were always three to five uh, scripts ahead, which is uh-huh. a very smart investment. If you don't do that nowadays, anybody that's listening, 
I think it's like buying a Rolls Royce and then driving around without insurance, knowing nobody's, you're never going to hit anybody. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So invest in the beginning in three to five scripts and stay ahead, you know, and you've got to throw them away when, when you're canceled. But boy, it's good insurance because I, and what I've seen since then, everybody's clamoring, even on the day you're shooting, you're getting pages and nobody's sure. And, you know, it's up to the editor to make sense of it. <laughs> but anyway, so I started directing and uh, it, I don't know if you know, we had the main, we only shot at the hotel in San Francisco one, once, one week. That's right. Yeah, and then the big stage at uh, at Warner Brothers became the lobby, wall to wall. That was a lot with the staircase going up. It was huge, and I mean, I would do things like uh, have five scenes in what all in one take in that lobby, coming down the stairs, and these people would leave, and the, you know, I mean, five different scenes all in one one take, you know, and. Uh, not, not that it ended up being cut like that, but I, I was in my element. I, I would oh, you look out the window and I'd have reflections of a photograph in a mirror. And so, you know, you're looking out over San Francisco Bay, you know, at the lights. And uh, uh, so I was really prepared for that, for that. Uh, and I think I did 10 hours of that show. Yep, ten episodes. You directed. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. How did how did being an actor really help you as a director? Um, well, like I said, I bought my first movie camera at fifteen, so that's all I ever thought about. Every time, you know, I mean, when I was, and that's another complication. I could have been a good actor if I hadn't been looking through the lens mentally. <laughs> right. Yeah. Trying to play role at the same time, looking at the lighting, you know, I mean, I knew everybody's job, you know, and uh, sometimes an actor is better off just doing what he does well, but I couldn't do that. You know, it's just like all these businesses I've been in, you know, I'm, I'm only in one of, of uh, like eight businesses now, you know, because I failed at them basically. <laughs> God, it was so great to try everything, you know? Sure, sure. You tried something different, certainly, with the, the, the following TV series, Pensacola. Uh, and that, so so up to this point, you know, so Marcus Welby, you're, you're the actor. And then for Hotel, you, you, you got directing. And then yeah. Pensacola, you're now executive producer. So yeah. how... How was that whole experience, especially with working in, uh, you know, at the at the at the air base in, you know, near San Diego? I mean, yeah. you know, cooperation in the military and everything. And there was a full studio down there. Um, Stu Siegel had his studio. He had done several series down there. So it wasn't like we're going uh, down into a strange area out of L.A. Uh, all his cutting and his uh, everything related to L.A., there was an airplane that went back and forth two, three times a week for editing and a lot of people working up here in Burbank. So it was uh, it was amazing, actually, because uh, he trusted me from the get go. And uh, I brought in 
three or four other directors that he had never used, and including Sidney Fury. I brought him down. You know, we're getting old, and Sidney's not working on a picture, and came down. He ended up being their favorite director on Pensacola, you know. Um, so that was a really wonderful uh, time down there. Uh, so, so listen, I mean, in the, in the early 2000s, you got to work sort of back to back with two great directors named Steven. Uh, first in 2000 with Traffic, Steven Soderbergh, mm-hmm. and then 2002 with Steven Spielberg on Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like, you know, when you're like, especially because I've, I've grown up with your career and, and certainly got into this business and, you know, seeing all these changes, like, I feel like you really learn how to adapt to the changing landscape of the business and also, uh, you know, sort of playing to your strengths as you're, as you have gotten older and both of these roles and both of these movies are, they're supporting roles, but they are crucial roles. So what was it about traffic? What was it about working with Soderbergh? And uh, he won, Soderbergh won Best Director Academy Award for that film. But that movie is just absolutely fantastic. Yes, it is terrific. And it was actually one of the first to deal with uh, the cartels or any of the Mexican outlaws, wasn't it? And um, I... Uh, I love that speech, you know. I mean, they make a real good speech there uh, in in that main scene. And, uh, you know, I, I, there was no no question that I was going to do that. It's not a big role, right? Right, right. No, it's not. But that scene is crucial. That's what I mean. It's yes. Like, like and, it's- I got a, and I got a lot of feedback off that one scene. It, it kind of uh, taught me a lot about what you should t- uh, take and what you should turn down, you know. Uh, it, it was very meaningful to me when I read it, and it was really meaningful to a lot of other people who got back to me and said, whoa, you know, killed it, you know. <laughs> and I, you know, you, you work two months or three months on something and you don't kill it, and then you do a couple of days. I mean, it wasn't more than a week that I, I think that I was on it. And what was the other one you you mentioned? Catch me if you can with oh, catch me if you can. Caprio and you know. So how was I mean? That's your first time working with Spielberg. That must have been no. Actually, uh, Spielberg did one of the first Welbies. Oh, he did. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. You remember he had done? He'd come in and done. Uh, um, remember he came in and he lived. He he took an office upstairs. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. For six months before anybody asked him, what are you doing here? Who are yeah, you? That's right. Great and story. And showed his little uh, uh, sneaker film with the shoelaces, the sh- sneakers falling in love with each other. It was a, you know, um, stop frame little film. And then he got a movie of the week with somebody, I forget. Uh, oh, uh, a duel. Huh? No, but duel. no, duel was after. Okay. So then that must have been, wait, uh, was it Night Gallery? Yeah, it was a, he did a night gallery, and he also did something with a famous old movie star. And then he got up. I think we were like the third thing at Universal that he did. Amazing. Amazing. And he was so shy that, uh, uh, and, you know, I've, I've said this in front of him before, 
he would he would keep his eye on the eyepiece and tell the assistant, you know, to come over and tell him to uh, just move over to the left. He was afraid. He didn't know how to talk to us. Oh, wow. Right. Right. Yeah. But he had this eye and he knew, you know, the show was great, of course, but he wasn't like any other uh, officious director we'd ever had. And uh, I, I wouldn't say, you know, oh, watch that guy either because too quiet. And the next thing he is doing dual. Fabulous, fabulous film. Yeah, that's with no money. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that. That's my kind of film, too. I mean, I love that. Well, you got a old road and a and a, a bar somewhere way that way out. In, you know, Lancaster and a truck. You, you did your own movie like that. The car. I did the car. Yeah. The car yeah. is scary. The car, the car actually was uh, was uh, developed about the same time. It was written by one of my best friends in high school, artist Doug Wheeler. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I ended up uh, taking it to uh, NBC after we uh, I did uh, a thing called Trapped. Uh, in 1972, it was the highest rated movie of the week, which Barry Dillard Barry Diller made up the uh, the phrase movie of the week. And we made that movie there for ABC called Trapped. And we uh, won best, best movie of the year of, of all the television networks, you know? Yeah. So when, so when Spielberg, you got to work with him after all these, you know, decades. Yeah. yeah. Like, 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 what was that like? Did he... Did he say, hey, good seeing you again? Or or like, like you know. Was- oh, no, no he, he did that all before we started working. He was just great and said, I want you to do this. And and then Hanks, who I knew, and um, uh, Leo, who I know now. I don't think, I, I think I may have met him in passing, but uh, he's a wonderful guy and uh, very kind to the world. Yeah, he is. Yeah. um, But uh, Spielberg, I was surprised after all of the going from what he was to being the officious, uh, the possibly officious, great movie maker. Uh, He was so wonderful to work for. And he was so subtle with me in his suggestions Mm -hmm. that, you know, I've worked with 300 directors, so I know and uh, don't tell anybody the DGA, but half of them need their their membership yanked. <laughs> you know, they were writers. They said, "Yo, oh, no, yeah, you're you're an executive producer. Go ahead and direct." And then that's the last time they <laughs> they directed. But yeah, there's some there's some guys that never. Well, I would say, in a nutshell, never went to an acting class. So how would they know how to talk to actors or where they're coming from? I think it's important to know what, where the buttons are because they're, they're pretty universal. Well, the, the year, the year after catch me, if you can uh, talk about a daunting, challenging role, Ronald Reagan in the Reagans. Yeah. It, how do you take a character like Ronald Reagan, who would probably be very easy to imitate and humanize him? Like what were the challenges for you to play Ronald Reagan? Well, I had very early on 
sort of mimicked his voice, you know, well, Nancy and I, you know, (laughs) and I had heard that. And I said it to some, somebody laughed. And then I would every once in a while, when his name came up, I would do that. So that, but that meant nothing. Years later, uh, Craig Zayden and Neil, they, um, through my agent and through some friends that we knew said, we want Jim to play Reagan. And my first reaction was everybody in town must have turned this down. You know, wow. Uh, why, why are they coming to me for this? I'm the least likely guy to do this, you know? And I, and I, you know, eventually I went back, well, I did the impossible once before with Gable because I still don't quite know how I did it, except, um, well, I have an old saying, sitting in the shit until you don't smell it anymore. Oh, Jesus. Uh, that's watching the Gable movies uh, oh, until you begin to get that little, that, you know, that way of, you know, and, and showing your teeth that way, and, and you sort of become them, and, and that's you know, uh, um, some actors are, are trained to go into a bar and sit next to a bar fly, you know. Uh, in fact, most of us are, but we, we go and sit night after night in a bar and hang around somebody that's just so weird, and we start to take on some of their affectations. So anyway, with uh, anyway, I turned it down. I just said, no, no way. This is, this is one of those things I told Josh about, you know, what you turn down is more important than what you do. Um, and uh, they said they're coming over to the house and they're going to sit out in the driveway while I just read the first 20 minutes. Oh, I refuse to read it. That's right. While I read the first 20 minutes and I'm going i started reading it, and they're out there, and I uh, said, what is this? This guy's out there. (laughs) (laughs) And then I started, uh, after I said yes, then I said, yeah, yeah. I got to, this is so, this guy is so funny in a way. Peculiar funny. That's the way to sum up, yeah. I don't care if I'm right for it or not. The way he thinks is is wild. So I started reading um, books about it, um, factual historical situations that he'd been in, and also realized that he was a proscenium freak. You know, he could be, oh, you know, just kind of in the dumps all day. Um, he even he would even hit hide part of the day from his family and then come out at dinner time. He was making notes and doing whatever his thing in closed door. But he was a proscenium freak in that he would, you know, come out and go, hey, hey, yeah, and make like life was great. And then they could see, go back in there and go back into his, whatever his world was, you know. And I just thought, oh, God, that's so fascinating, you know. And then you got nominated, your fifth Emmy nomination. Yeah. Playing Ronald Reagan. So and he had Golden Globe. And, yep. Yeah, but the thing is, you remember we got, oh, if you know that, we got 30,000 negative emails to CBS from the Young Republicans, and there was a real thing. Oh, yeah. We were destroying this guy. And uh, I didn't see anything destructive, really, about it at all. 
um, I was just seeing a guy who was effective and, and peculiar in doing it, you know. And uh, 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 CBS finally caved and they Showtime. all. Showtime. Showtime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it went from 100 million possible viewers to 4 million possible viewers or whatever the number is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you didn't pay for Showtime, you didn't get to see it, you know. So, uh, yeah. So a lot of people. Still, have never seen it, you know. Yeah, well, I remember seeing but, it. I thought it was great, and and uh, Nancy Davis was good. She was good. Yeah, really good for Nancy. Yeah, I can't think of who else might have done a little bit. And she kind of had the look too. You know, she definitely had the look. She was perfect. Yeah. yeah. So, and then you know, uh, another TV series that that you did for five, uh, four seasons, uh, Life in Pieces. Yeah. Uh, which which is completely different from Pensacola, completely different from Hotel, completely different from Marcus Welby. So mm. why was Life and Peace is great for you at that stage? And, and, and how much fun and how rewarding was it for you for that series? Yeah, um, I had uh, been sitting around for a couple of years. I always figure you do a series and you got a five-year cool-off period until they forget who you were and they can accept who you now want to be or can be or are. And uh, this this show, I read it and I started laughing and I wondered, you know, I didn't get it at first why I was laughing. This is my dad. My dad used to at five o'clock, he would, you know, as I said, he was prolific at a lot of things. He was a brilliant engineer. He was a great cook. But he, at five o'clock, he would make his Mai Tai with the umbrella and the piece of pineapple and start. And by 530, he was just kind of silly, you know, just kind of <laughs> silly and never drunk. I never saw him stumble or anything. Uh, but. Uh, us four kids, we had four children. Uh, we started playing comedy routines with him, and he thought we were serious. And we just had the most fun with his drinking, as opposed to a lot of families where one, you know, the father's drinking and ruining everything. That didn't happen with us. <laughs> and since then, we have the most provocative, awful sense of humor. I'm probably the the. Uh, most contained of everybody. I, I, I keep saying to my brother, you can't say that. You can't, you can call me and say it to me, but you can't ever say that in public, you know? <laughs> and it, was, it was like Chris Rock gets away with murder. And, and even back, Eddie Murphy did broke ground. And you know, those guys were amazing. Anyway, that's not my forte, of course, but uh, the humor we, we love. And so I saw my dad in this role and, uh, and the problem was there's a cast of 11. I, I didn't ever feature, uh, I've, I'd always been the protagonist mm-hmm. in everything in television. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to be one of a cast of 11, you know, no matter how they built. And it, it ended up, they would kind of advertise me and Diane, but uh, in the end we would be, in the credits we be and Jim Brolin and Diane, you know, squeezed. Uh, but 
uh, they had me, uh, the character was a haberdasher. And I said, that's so boring. How many coats are you going to make? How many things are not going to fit? Let's make him a 747 airline pilot. And nobody to this day can imagine how anybody ever let him in the cockpit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That he's so yeah. forgetful. That's right on point. <laughs> and, uh, and, and even in a lot of scenes, I had the Mai Tai in my hand. You know, so if it fit, you know, that, uh, okay, this is a really serious moment. We've got a problem. We've got to solve it. But give me a Mai Tai for my hands, you know, to so they'll begin to see that he's just a little loopy today. And uh, all of those scenes that were just um, probably recognizable to uh, to all of us that our grandpa or grandma who was just getting a little on a little airy fairy uh, I got to do all that I wanted to do I wanted to express the, the that comedic science side side that us kids all did for years and years and nobody would ever hire Jim Brolin for a comedy so I said I'm grabbing this and w- what happened was um Sometimes I'd have to come in for two, two, three hours. Sometimes uh, they need me one, two days a week. So that was the trade-off. That's kind of nice because, you know, I like it out here, me and, me and the ocean and the birds and the surfboard. And- <laughs> well, when you, I mean, listen, this is exactly like at this stage, when you look back on this career that started, you know, with Bus Stop in 1961, and, you know, you're voicing uh, one of the characters in the new uh, Buzz Lightyear movie. And yeah. your career is absolutely still going strong. And you've, like, just really adapted, you know, and done so many different things. Uh, do you have a philosophy that you that that help help you adapt to the changes and the ups and downs of this business so you can always, well, well I can't do this anymore, but I could do that. Like, I mean, it's mm-hmm. really incredible. Uh, you know, that, that you are, have really just keep going and are still so busy, but like, what is, what has been your philosophy uh, and your, your ability to adapt and even, you know, survive? Well, you know, during the pandemic, we all slowed down a bit, but had there been some activity somewhere, I would have worked out a a safe way to do it. But, you know, uh, also, but I want to protect my wife and people around me by uh, if I get it, you know, me, I go, well, I get over it. But you carry it to somebody else. That's a danger. Yeah. So yeah. we've, we've hold up a lot here. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I did um, Sweet Tooth series yep. mm-hmm. became number one in Netflix worldwide, number one series and now we've got uh next next season coming up and uh, robert called me up and uh, said uh, you know you're doing the the narration and i said you know and i'm thinking you know listen i've done over many years i've done so many tapes for voiceover I wanted to do a Dodge commercial. I wish I never told you about the Dodge commercial. I'll tell you about that in a second. But I wanted to do, uh, 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 anyway, all these years I I have been wanting to do voiceover, some some kind of thing. And 
so he calls and says, I want you to do Sweet Tooth. And uh, you got to call Warner's uh, people and uh, work it out with them. And Warner said, no, no we don't want him. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not uh, the deal we want to make. And uh, he said, he called him up and said, I want him. That's all. That's all. Uh, so I uh, so I did it. it, and then the next thing I'm getting a call from Disney for uh, the the last franchise picture was Toy Story four did a billion two, mm-hmm. and they've never really featured. I don't think they've ever featured uh, Buzz Lightyear Correct. in their movies. It was right. uh, it, it was, was uh, Woody Sheriff Woody, yeah, yep. yeah, mm-hmm. and so. Now this 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 thing. If you've seen any of the uh, film on it, it's it is spectacular looking, but it's a space movie, mm-hmm. yeah. an animated space movie, and uh, I can't tell you yet what I did in it. But I'm, um, uh, you know, Chris Evans is the one lead, and then I'm uh, also in it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's it's a big thing. They're calling me getting ready to uh, go and promote it. And by the way, all of these things, um, I, I did the Pixar, the Disney movie down at a studio near Disney. But, you know, everybody's masks and the room sprayed and everything. But all of the uh, uh, Sweet Tooth stuff, they sent a portable studio to me, a tripod and a screen. And I set it up downstairs here and did uh, eight out eight hours of narration uh on eight different times uh-huh wow yeah you know, without going down there it was it was quite uh, fun to do at home because but then you know you get the earphones on you got the director you got the whole recording team in your earphones and uh what i thought i'd knock off in 15 minutes turned into three sweaty hours because you know, they keep saying oh try this try that and they yeah. did the same thing with pixar but it's quite fun it's a real job it's not like you know you just go and record a voiceover in your phone and email it you know it's a uh, it's a sweaty three hours and you try to uh, again get into uh, uh, in the Pixar thing, a character I wasn't allowed to read or really know about. Oh, I just know the parameters of it. Oh, I, I see. I see what they're doing there. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 They want it to be a bit of a surprise. And it's going to be a surprise even to you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jim, you know, as as we wrap up this conversation, you know, to to all the SAG-AFTRA members watching this uh, this conversation, you know, what advice do you have for aspiring actors and performers, especially coming from someone who has just had so much great success on on the big screen, the small screen, and 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 elsewhere. Well, I know so many actors that have, uh, that have have or have not or have sort of tried to, you know, ask me directly or just tried to get the information without looking like they need the information, you know. Um, <laughs> what do you do? And my answer would get, be get up on stage, get into a workshop where you can get hammered by all these people that uh, uh, some you'll like, some you won't like. They'll all have comments about you. You'll have to work hard during the day with uh, whoever you're doing your scenes with. 
You may not like the partner you work with. Just do it. And um, like I, there was a portion there where I was in a different class Monday through Friday. And that was early on when I signed at Fox when I had some money to do it. Now I think some of these classes are, are a little too expensive, but uh, do as much as you can to, to uh, get on with it. And um, um, don't, take, don't take another vocation, but work as many jobs as you can just to get the money to pay for everything and live you know, somewhat decently and, and, and drop your mode of living. You don't, you don't need all that stuff. Sunshine and a good sandwich every day is all you need. (laughs) That's great advice. That is great advice. And this was a great conversation. James Brolin, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor and so much fun talking with you about your amazing career. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your work and can I say, just keep doing what you are doing. <laughs> well, I have no idea what's going to go on next, uh, it is, but that's kind of what's so wonderful about it, you know? Like I say, I got my four, I got four films up for financing, and each one I think is very viable, but no takers so far. So, But, you know, that's, that's how we began. Well, this is, just the begin- this is absolutely just the beginning, and those financiers – Get James Brolin on the phone right away. So thank you again, James. And thank you, everyone, for watching this sag After Foundation conversation at home, this career conversation with James Brolin. Thank you so very much. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for a good time. Thank you for listening to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation. And reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG-AFTRA Found. We'd love to hear from you.